The MarTech Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. From advertising to software as a service to data. Across all of our programs and clients, we've seen a 55 to 65% open rate. Getting brands authentically integrated into content performs better than TV advertising. Typical lifespan of an article is about 24 to 36 hours. If we're reaching out to the right person with the right message and a clear call to action, then it's just a matter of timing. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast, a Ben J. Shap LLC production. In this podcast, you'll hear the stories of world-class marketers that use technology to drive business results and achieve career success. We'll unearth the real-world experiences of some of the brightest minds in the marketing and technology space so you can learn the tools, tips, and tricks they've learned along the way. Now here's the host of the MarTech Podcast, Benjamin Shapiro. Welcome to Career Day on the MarTech Podcast. Today, we're going to learn about the skills accumulated and lessons learned from a great marketer throughout the various stops on his career. Joining us today is an executive that runs a B2B SaaS marketing service that focuses on employee advocacy. Glenn Gadet is the CEO of GaggleAmp, which is a platform that empowers companies to tap into their employees, partners, and resellers to digitally share content and social engagement activities. And prior to his role leading the team at GaggleAmp, Glenn held a variety of in-house and consulting marketing and product leadership roles. And we're excited to have him as our guest to talk a little bit about his career path today. Okay, here's our interview with CEO of GaggleAmp, Glenn Gaudet. Glenn, welcome to the MarTech Podcast. Ben, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to connect. I'm a big fan of the product and excited to hear a little bit about how you decided to start your company and uh, about your career. Let's start off from the beginning. Give us the 10,000 foot view on what your current role is and, and what the company does. What's Gagalamp? Sure. So I'm the CEO and founder of Gagalamp. The company was started almost nine years ago now. And the genesis of the idea came out of, believe it or not, a job interview. I was interviewing for a chief marketing officer position at a company in the Boston area. And back then, social media was not quite as big as it is now, as you might think, and not quite as integrated into companies' marketing thoughts as it is now. And the CEO was asking me about social media and what could they do differently. And frankly, they were in a place where they hadn't done much. And they were competing against another company, you might have heard of them, Cisco, the technology provider. And I said, well, you know, we're starting from scratch here. Why don't we maybe get our employees involved to help out? Well, I thought it was a good idea. He thought it was a good idea. So I went home to look for the tool set that I could use to actually do what I suggested we could do. And I couldn't find anything. And had an idea. And I'm like, well, this is kind of interesting. Nobody's done this yet. And I'm thinking, well, why not? <laughs> what am I not seeing that's there? But ultimately, I made the decision to start the company rather than pursue that job. And I'm very glad that I did. 
So Gaglamp is a platform that helps companies leverage their employees and partners essentially as maybe marketing vehicles is the way to put it. And we call it employee advocacy, but it allows people that are in your organization to talk about your company in an appropriate fashion and help them promote the things that they're working on. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, if you go back a few years Typically, the people who could speak about the company were usually designated people, you know, the official spokespeople for the company. With the introduction of social media now, you have employees that are having conversations online. They're connecting with people. They're connecting with prospects. They're connecting with customers, partners, etc., And what Gagalamp does as a platform is it allows the company itself, usually the marketing team, sometimes an agency, to actually prepackage different activities. It might be sharing a piece of content. It might be a social engagement. It might be something as simple as, hey, there's a blog post written out there we'd like you to comment on. So there's a whole series of activities you can have your employees do that will support whatever it is that the company is trying to do from an overall marketing, specifically a digital marketing perspective. I actually want to take a step back and talk a little bit more about the genesis of your career leading up to you deciding to take on an entrepreneurial venture like this. Talk to me about how you got into marketing. Well, let's go in the Wayback Machine. Break out the DeLorean. (laughs) So in undergrad, I went to Babson College, which is in Wellesley, Massachusetts, many, many moons ago. I had a double major of marketing and communications, and I graduated with a BS in business management. That kind of set the stage, I think, for an interest in marketing, an understanding of how companies will actually bring their products to market. Back then, I remember it was all about the four Ps. You probably remember that, Ben, right? Product, price, packaging, promotion. So it was kind of a different world back then right? Because there were only so many channels that you could get a message out on. And it was certainly before the digital era. This kind of led me down a path of just exploration. So my first job out of undergrad was actually working for a company producing high-tech trade shows. So if you've ever been in a trade show, it's a pretty fascinating world. There's a lot of moving parts. And I spent a couple of years doing that, which was pretty interesting, actually managing the event, producing the events. But I was fascinated by the booths that were at my shows. I was fascinated by the messaging, by the colors, the marketing, how people were actually engaging people to come to their booth and learn more about a product. So that got me to believe that maybe I should spend my time less about producing the events and think about getting actually in and selling kind of a different product, which might be technology. Just to set the stage for everyone, we're talking about the late 80s, early 90s. Access to marketing impressions was a dramatically different thing at that time, right? You can't just digitally advertise and pop up something on someone's phone or run a Facebook ad and follow them around the internet using retargeting. All of those channels don't exist. You had television, you had out of home, you had mail, and you could try to meet people in person. And that was kind of it right? Then there's some other scrappy marketing. And so, you know, you were working at these trade shows where there's an aggregation of people 
that are interested in your products or services, you get very few impressions. You need to make a splash. And so the marketing collateral that goes into running an event where now it seems like, you know, there are more events and there's just a million places you can go to meet people that are related to your business. There's meetups, events, you could do digital marketing, all sorts of places. That didn't necessarily exist late 80s, early 90s. There wasn't that type of technology. So you had few and far between opportunities to actually get right in front of your customer. And even to add on to that, if you were selling B2B, which is where my interest took me, one of the limited channels you had was going through some sort of professional or trade publication. So if you think back to those days, there was a lot of money spent in print ads for these publications. And what's interesting is they never had the level of transparency that you have today with digital. You know when somebody looks at something digitally today, you didn't necessarily know that back then with trade publications, their audience surveys were the closest thing you were gonna get to kind of figuring out who's reading it and how many people might be reading it. But because it was so limited, it kind of forced everybody to use these limited channels. So you had, you had very different options back then. And I think from that point of view, from a marketing point of view, there was a lot more focus than there is now. So you're working in the event marketing space and you start to notice some of the signage and some of the collateral that's being created. And that catches your eye earlier in your career and you decide that you want to focus on go down that path. And you mentioned that there was a technology bent into that too. Talk to me about what your interest in learnings and interest from the event marketing space and the collateral that was being used drove you to investigate. I think what I was most interested in is the level of conversations that people were having in that face-to-face -face event. You have very little time. You have a few seconds to catch somebody's eye if they're walking past a booth, to actually draw them into a booth. So you need to be really crisp, really clear with what that message is to get them to take some interest to see if they're going to self-qualify and say, tell me more. So from there, I was looking at that and then looking at the fact that the technology that I was producing the show around was in the telecom space. Now, if you know anything about telecom back in the late 80s, early 90s, AT&T was split up by the government. And this created an entire ecosystem. You went from one monopoly, essentially, to all of these other regional players and an opportunity for other players to come in and compete against each of those regional players. So it created this infrastructure of technology that all these different players now had a demand for. So that was the environment that I was in. And I started to be fascinated by the actual technology itself. And that went beyond my marketing interest. So that explains a little bit about how you got down into the technology sector. You're interested in the usage of technology. You've started to notice the way that marketing works. You're still an individual contributor. Talk to me about what your learnings were and some of the biggest lessons that you gained out of your work as an individual contributor, whether it be in the event management space or, or some of the roles that you had immediately after. You know, I look back now and I look at the individual contributor situations that I was in, 
And I have an appreciation for the impact that that individual contributor can have, whether it's a positive impact or a negative impact. So when you look at it as an individual contributor, and I've had both sales positions and marketing positions as an individual contributor, there's a lot placed on you. There's a lot that the company needs done. So you're a very important piece to that. And if I was to kind of, again, go back into the Wayback Machine and talk to myself back then, I probably would have taken more interest in educating myself in other areas outside the ones that I was staring at right in front of me. Yeah, I I hear you. Talk to me about some of the responsibilities you had and some of the roles you had as an individual contributor. So as I mentioned, producing trade shows, I was putting together conferences and identifying the right kinds of sessions to put together that would draw the right people that ultimately the sponsors would want to meet. So that's kind of the event side of it. From there, I did marketing in a software business, which kind of opened my eyes up now to really understanding the clarity of a product that was built by the United States Army that we were bringing to the private sector. So instead of designing a product for a particular marketplace, we were trying to take the product and find a marketplace for it that was outside the single marketplace that they had, which was the U.S. Army. That was a really interesting experience, trying to take a product and figuring out where else it could be sold. And that actually came back to help me later on in life. So early in your career, you set the foundation where you're learning about marketing, specifically in event marketing. You have some sales experience, and you're also discovering technology and working on management product development. So you're getting some product experience as well. At some point, you make the transition from being an individual contributor. You're working for a defense contractor, and you're doing marketing and technology product management. At some point, you move into the next phase of your career, which is into the sort of director-level management portion of your career. Talk to me about making that transition. What was the difference for you from being an individual contributor focused on marketing and product development to starting to learn how to manage teams and taking on more responsibility? What did you do and what did you learn from that process? Well, I learned it was not as easy as I originally thought. So I just thought that getting the title means that you've got more status within the organization. And that certainly does come with it, but there's also more responsibility. So I think there's a little bit of a humbling effect when you first start to manage people because not everybody works the same way you do. Not everybody thinks the same way you do. Not everybody has the same work ethic that you do. So it was really an eye-opening experience because at the time I had moved up from an individual contributor to a director within the same company. So I had that transition within the same company. It wasn't jumping from one company to another. And that in and of itself taught me a lot about not just managing people, but about me and managing my time and managing where I should set my priorities with that time. And I think that that's probably one of the biggest things that you can learn when you make that first leap from an individual contributor to managing of others is really being able to prioritize your time because your time can be taken by all these different people that may be working for you now. And some of them may need the help 
And then there's also decisions that you have to make where it doesn't matter how much help I might give somebody, they're just not the right fit for that particular role and what we're trying to do. And none of that, I think, comes naturally. It certainly didn't come naturally to me. And that's something that I had to seek out a lot of advice on and get some coaching on. So it sounds like one of the learnings from your early management experience was figuring out who were the highest caliber or highest potential employees and investing your efforts in terms of coaching and mentoring and the people that had the highest ceilings, as opposed to focusing on getting the people that were struggling or potentially not a fit in the role to be competent. I think that's a fair statement because, first of all, I think intuitively, most people will want to help everybody will want to be able to give everybody as much ramp time as possible. But the reality is there's limited ramp time that you can give anybody to get up to speed. So you might have somebody who's been in the job, but that job just isn't getting done. So you have to make some decisions around that. Do I have the right person? Was it a training issue? Is this job even doable? So once you make some of those decisions, then you start thinking about your personnel. Do I have the right personnel? And what do I do with this situation? So from a career development perspective, you're working at a technology company and you're gaining your management experience. You are figuring out where to invest your time in terms of people management. But relatively quickly, I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile. You go from being a director of product marketing at a few different places to all of a sudden you're a founder and managing director, and then you're a CMO. So it seems like there is a relatively quick leap between the 2002 to 2004 range where you're working as a manager of people, you know, a director level employee to in 2007, you're the CMO of a company. What led to that rise? Were you being strategic and taking on different roles to gain different experiences? How did you make the transition from director level and gaining management experience to running a marketing department? It's pretty interesting because I'm not sure there's only one path to get to where I've gotten. And I'm pretty sure I haven't talked to anybody who's followed a similar path that I have. During that time, what I found is I wanted to get more varied experience after I'd spent time in a series of companies where I was very focused on just one area. So that was the idea of going more on the consulting path. So what I did is I created a consulting service in which I would go in as essentially an interim CMO and help them out, do an assessment and get them to the point where the company could actually hire a full-time CMO. And I found that to be both intellectually stimulating for me as well as lucrative, frankly, in helping these companies and seeing a variety of challenges that different companies have and trying to figure out how do we get them to the point where when we transition off to that full-time CMO, they've got some momentum behind them. So that's what I did. And as a result of that, that opened up the opportunity to go full-time as a CMO at companies. So you use your consulting experience, you developed a consulting strategy and started running a consulting practice, and you were a fixer, right? You come into a company and you set up the marketing foundation to the point where they're able to hire someone full-time. And by going through this process, you're getting multiple reps 
understanding how companies are different and how to get something established to the point where it can be taken and run with. And the reason why I'm paraphrasing some of this is I've done a very similar thing, right? My role as a marketing consultant was to come in and help companies figure out what their marketing foundation. And it is incredibly valuable to be able to be integrated into various marketing teams and get that multiple reps where if you're going to work in-house, you move every, you know, hopefully four years right now. It seems to be right. A good length job right now is about four years. And as a consultant, you get to see, you know, two of those a year. So you're just quickening the pace of what a different brand is, what a marketing problem is, what the channel mix is. I'm assuming that helped you feel like you were ready to be a CMO. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, when are you ready for any role? To some degree, it's when somebody else offers you the role. Two years after you take the job. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm not sure you're ready for any role the day you take it. But I think in terms of having the opportunity for the role, the opportunity only comes if somebody is going to offer you the opportunity or you yourself create the opportunity. So to our listeners out there, one of the things that I would suggest is if you're not getting the opportunities that you want being offered by somebody else, create a world in which you make the opportunities appear for yourself. And that's essentially what I did by going the consulting path. Although there wasn't a tremendous amount of intentionality around that to actually create that opportunity. But as a result, opportunities were created. I think that you're ahead of the curve. And I think that that's more of a popular trend today than it's ever been before, where the ability to work remote and there's so many tools and services to do contract for hire that instead of traditional employment agreements where you're bringing someone in-house, it's a lot easier now for someone to say, I'm going to be independent. I'm going to work for this company for a couple months and then find another place. And I see a trend for more people going independent. I've done it myself as opposed to have a traditional employment agreement. I think in 2002 to 2005, as you were focused on consulting, you were probably ahead of the curve and it was innovative to be able to branch out on your own and be a consultant in an independent fashion. Eventually, you do make the move back in-house. Why did you decide that you wanted to go back in-house as opposed to run an independent consulting agency? It really came down to my desire to be back part of a team. When you're doing a consultancy, yes, you are part of that team, but it's an interim feel and you don't get the full engagement that you do as being part of a team with a longer tenure. So that was one of the things that I was like, hmm, if I'm not pitching my own consulting practice, I'm actually delivering the practice, right? So there was never this scenario where I could just go in and really focus and just drive results to the same way that you can do in a longer term company relationship. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a question of breadth versus depth. And you know, when you're going into a consulting role, what I've seen in my consulting practice is you get to see the inner workings of lots of companies and that can help stimulate you as a marketer and as a professional because you see all of these opportunities and you get to work on them, but you don't get the ability to see through a two to three year marketing plan, right? Very rarely are you working for the same company for that long of a time. And by design, right? I mean, that's the design of the consulting role. Yeah. It keeps it fresh. It's exciting. Well, it's also what their needs are. Their needs are not to have an interim anything for a couple of years. Right. 
And then you decide to go back in house and all of a sudden, hey, you get to see and set a marketing plan that's more than three months and I have to sing for my supper. And now you get a couple of years to be able to implement your plan. That's right. Talk to me about the tactical marketing things that you learned up to the point that you were becoming a CMO. How did you develop the skills that are necessary through the rise of the the digital age? We're now into the point where, you know, internet marketing is starting to become an important facet of marketing. You started off in events. Where did you cultivate all the other understanding of channels and the marketing tactics to be able to be an effective CMO? Well, it's interesting. I had started with uh, an intellectual curiosity around how can I do something different than what everybody else is doing? So I'd always try to explore new things. I mean, I remember I was working at this one software company doing product marketing and coming up with campaigns that not everybody else was doing. Maybe it was a fax campaign because we actually had fax numbers back then. And just leveraging different technology and tools to try something new and constantly kind of push the limits of what's out there. Because what I I think intuitively knew at the time, and certainly is the case now, if you do the same thing everybody else is doing, you may get the same result or probably worse. But you're certainly not going to get better results. So what is it that you can bring to the table that gives you that advantage? And I think that's something that has always kind of driven me to look for something that not everybody else is doing that I can take advantage of. I want to go back to an important thing that you said. For those of you who are listening that are under the age of 25, a fax machine is essentially sending someone an email, (laughs) but it prints out in their office. (laughs) Kidding aside... Eventually, you make the transition to becoming a CMO. What's it like running a marketing department? And how is that different than being a consultant or, or being a director level employee when you're actually steering the entire department? There's two things that come to mind, right? Certainly people and also budgets. So now at the CMO level, you're not doing all the day-to-day tactical stuff that you're doing even at the director level and certainly at the individual contributor level. So now I've got to think about building the machines that allow the overall goals of the company to be reached. So what kinds of machines do I have to build? I have to build machines that usually include some amount of money and some amount of resources. And those resources tend to be people and technology. And you start thinking a little differently because you have to pull yourself out from that day to day and look at the forest beyond the trees, if you will. So I think that that's probably the biggest thing that I walked away with and I had to learn being a CMO is that you're not doing that tactical thing every day, but you have to understand that the tactics drive the efforts of the machine. You have to have a well-oiled machine to make this all work. And it's got to do it within the budget that's been established to do that. One of the things that I've learned the most talking to CMOs through this podcast is that when you get to that level and you're an executive, you're now one level removed from the operation. There's the people that are actually doing the work, and then there's their managers who you are managing. So you are pretty removed from the actual operations, and your job is more around executive collaboration, right? working with the finance team, making sure the budgets are clear, working with the product team, making sure they're dedicating the right resources, communicating upwards to the CEO, and also setting the marketing strategy. But it's as much being an executive as it is being a marketer. 
Did you find yourself getting to the CMO level and feeling like you were removed from the activity of marketing? And how did you adjust to spending so much time doing coordination with the executive team as opposed to tactical marketing? I think there's always a little bit of that. I think there's always a little bit of the desire to kind of roll up your sleeve and get down in it. If for no other reason, just to see what might be able to be improved, what might be able to be done a little differently. But you really have to balance that because if you do too much of that, you end up having an impact on your team because now all of a sudden you're jumping in, you're doing somebody else's job that you hired to do. And that may not really sit well with them. The tendency for, I think, early executives is to want to kind of grab on and really understand what's going on and doing that. But what you quickly realize is that when you have a division of labor, if you will, if you've done your hiring correctly, you've got people who are really good and frankly, probably better than you at doing the tactics, right? So that mindset, if you're smart, will quickly dissipate from you wanting to kind of get down there and get tangled up with things and let the people that you hired that have the skill set actually get the job done, which allows you to maintain at the right level to be able to be that conduit between, in this case, the CEO and then your management layer. So you were the CMO of a couple different companies before starting Gagalamp. You were the CMO of Pulver Media and Tridia Labs. Talk to me about what those companies were and what was the difference between the marketing strategies you set? Of the two, Pulver Media was the larger. Tridia Labs was an early stage company that was building some technology, believe it or not, in the podcasting world. And Pulver Media was a larger, more established events in media house. So I was kind of revisiting back my first job out of school where I actually was in trade show production. But now as the CMO of that company, it was my responsibility to maintain the branding, get attendees to the events, get sponsorships at the events and in creating that air cover that sales would need to be able to sell effectively for those events. So it was really, at least from my point of view, it was very satisfying that I could almost come full circle, just coming in at a very different role in that industry that I'd started my career in. So you're essentially able to steer the ship that you got on early in your career. You're back in the event marketing space. You're running a marketing department. Eventually, you moved to Tridia Labs. You're the CMO and the VP of business development. What was that company and what was the strategy of marketing that you implemented? So Tridia Labs was, again, an early stage company that was developing technology for podcasting. It was actually a company that owned the domain podcast.com. And what we were doing was essentially creating a podcast directory and a podcast app. So not dissimilar to what you might know today as things like Stitcher, right? It was a platform where you could go consume podcasts. What I didn't realize back then is the impact that the funding of a company can have. We were completely under-resourced from a product development point of view. So we weren't able to actually get the product to the point where it was saleable. And that presents a problem when you're both responsible for marketing and business development that you don't have a product. So I learned a lot of lessons going into an early stage company to be able to ask the right questions upon going in that I didn't know to ask going in in this one. 
It seems like that's the first time that you've mentioned in your career where the career stop didn't necessarily work out, right? You face some adversity, you're working at a company that has some product and some funding problems, and you're responsible for marketing and developing the business, and you're essentially just trying to do it with your hands tied behind your back. How do you think about facing adversity in your career, and what are some of the ways that you can turn the failures into a positive? Frankly, you learn more from your failures than you do from your successes because you don't always know why you were successful in many cases. Was it luck? Was it something specific that was done? And what was that? Usually in a failure, you have more clarity on what went wrong. So from that point of view, I think you start learning that there's better questions that you can ask. There's better questions you can ask of the company that you might be looking to go in. There's better questions that you can ask of yourself, and there's better questions you can ask of the marketplace. So I think the questioning is such a valuable thing that I'm not sure everybody does as well as they should. It's something that I've talked about when people have interviewed me for other podcasts and I talk about my career is the learnings come from the failures. Absolutely. The successes are wonderful to celebrate, but you learn more about what you are good at when you're not successful. It points you in the right direction. As you go through this phase in your career, you've been a CMO twice now, and you work for this company that has some inherent problems. You learn a little bit about the organization that you want to work for. And you mentioned when we started this podcast, you were going through the interview process and you decided, "Eh, forget that. I'm going to go start my own thing. And you develop Gaggle Amp. What were you thinking about as you made the transition between being a CMO and running one function of marketing? to being the chief executive? What's the difference being the man at the top of the totem pole as opposed to the man or woman that's running the marketing department? I actually wasn't thinking as much about that in the early days. I was thinking about how I was going to pay the mortgage because I knew once I started the company, there was no revenue coming in when you start a company. So that was really more in my mind than trying to figure out the distinctions between the CMO and the CEO position. But moving past that, once I made the decision, it's interesting because we are not a venture-funded company. We did it, what I consider it the old-fashioned way. We grew the company through revenue, not through somebody else's investment in the company, such as a venture capitalist or even private equity. As a result, we grew organically. And at the end of the day, it was the kind of thing where I had to learn what a CEO is at least three or four different times now. And what I mean by that is because there's different stages that a startup will go through and an emerging size company will go through. And each one of those stages requires a different thought process as CEO. It requires a different mindset as CEO. And frankly, it's not something that's intuitive. Again, it's kind of like the marketing path. Not everything that you go through is intuitive once you get to a certain level. From my point of view, what I'm really excited about every morning when I get up, it's I'm still growing. I'm still growing as a person. I'm still growing as a CEO. And at every stage our company hits, I mean, we've been around now for, again, almost nine years, profitable company, growing company. It just, you know, I pinch myself and just say, notwithstanding the fact that I had never been a CEO before, that I've been able to bring together an amazing group of talented people that have made this company successful. 
I think that the biggest takeaway as a CEO, particularly of your own company, is it's really not about you as much as it is about the team that you surround yourself with. I think that's an important distinction of, you know, being the CEO, your role is evolving and your responsibilities are evolving as the company grows. It's one of the reasons why you don't see a lot of founders stay on as CEOs when companies get to the sort of enterprise scale, like the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world who started a company in their garage and are still running it at a macro level. Those stories are rare. Google, another exception, but for the most point, it's more like the Uber trajectory where you have a founder that comes in that you know is scrappy and gets the point to product market fit, and maybe that person can get through the scale phase. But when you get to the sort of macro enterprise level company and you need to be a true executive, the skills that you're using to find product market fit or to go from small to medium are very different to go from large to extra large. As your company has grown and gone from inception to successfully profitable and running for nine years, you know, you're to the point where you're scaled at some level. How has your marketing background helped you? And what did you have to learn on the fly because you were a marketer? I think what's interesting and a shared trait among marketers, at least the marketers that I've certainly worked with and met and certainly I feel this way, is that there's that curiosity, that intellectual curiosity to learn more. We're in a world now where digital marketing is changing. Every day. All the time. If you don't have a desire to embrace that change, consume more, learn more, if you put yourself into this category of just being static, I know what I know and that's it, you are not going to survive either as a company or as an individual in that company. So for me, what marketing has brought to the table is that desire to constantly be evolving. What can I do differently? How can I optimize this? Those are the kinds of core traits that I think are fundamental, not just in marketing, but in the entire company. As you look back on your career and you think about going from an individual contributor pre-digital era to in event marketing to being the CEO of a company that helps employees be advocates for their brand, what advice would you have for Glenn at the start of his career? Be a little more patient. Don't be the bull in the china shop that you were in your early 20s. That's just a product of being in your early 20s, early Glenn. Don't stress. <laughs> <laughs> and also, as I mentioned earlier, to look beyond that which is right in front of you and just consume more in terms of knowledge and ideas. One of the interesting things, and certainly one of the things that have served me well with my current company is this ability to see different things that are taking place out there and kind of triangulate them and maybe see a different direction that everybody else sees. It certainly was the case with the start of our company and the product. What's really unique about us as a company that you, you might see in a lot of other companies that are certainly our age now, you would see typically a lot of pivots along the way. And we've been fortunate enough to really be focused on our market space and actually help develop this market space and now benefit from a growing market space. 
this idea of synthesizing thoughts and processes that you might see out there, ideas that you might see out there, something that's completely non-related to your industry can spark an idea for you and yours. So being constantly on the lookout and exposing yourself to those other areas keeps you out of this siloed mentality of knowing what I know and being able to actually take and interpret things in a way that only, frankly, you probably interpret, which can help you come up with some of these new ideas, whether it be as an entrepreneur within your company or as an entrepreneur within your own company. I think that openness and the willingness to accept data and influences from multiple sources is one of the traits that's key to being an entrepreneur. I'll say that some of my favorite conversations for this podcast are talking to company founders and marketers who have worked and bootstrapped their companies because they've gone through multiple different phases and had to create and invent processes on their own without the safety net of institutional backing. And it also helps them develop their company and their brand and their identity without being forced or pushed by an outside influence. So Glenn, let me just say, it's been a pleasure to have you as a guest on the show. It's been an honor to hear your career story. And thank you for telling us a little bit about Gaggle Amp and for sharing the insights into what your career was like. Ben, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Just as an FYI to anybody who wants to learn more about my company, they can go to gagalamp.com forward slash martech, that's M-A-R-T-E-C-H. And we've got some great resources there for free if you want to learn more about how to take advantage of employee advocacy in your own company. All right. And that wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks to Glenn Gaudet, the CEO of Gagalamp, for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Glenn, you can click on the link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can send him a tweet. His handle is Glenn G, G-L-E-N-N-G. Or you can visit his company's website, which is gaggleamp.com slash MarTech, which is a page that they've set up that has access to an ebook, a webinar, and the ability for you to sign up for a demo of their product. Just one link in our show note I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while you're listening to this podcast, head over to martechpod.com. We have summaries of all of our episodes, contact information for our guests, and you can also send us your marketing questions or your topic suggestions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. My handle is Ben J. Shap on LinkedIn and on Twitter, B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P. And if you haven't subscribed yet and you want a daily stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, we're going to publish an episode every day during the work week. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow morning. Okay, that's it for today. But until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy. Thanks for listening to the MarTech Podcast, and I hear everything production. Looking to launch or scale a podcast like this one for your brand? Then visit IHearEverything.com.